0: To say that there have been misapprehensions over time concerning the nature of the second coming of Christ, the time of it, the nature of it, various aspects of it, would be an understatement uh, of grand proportion, wouldn't it? There have indeed been great misapprehensions, misapplications of the teaching of Scripture, and even in New Testament times, there were those who had some misapprehensions about the second coming of Christ that needed to be corrected. There have even been those who have said that uh, those who wrote uh, concerning those misapprehensions, as in the case of the Apostle Paul and others of the Apostles, actually themselves mistakenly believed that the Lord was going to come again in their lifetime. There's nothing in Scripture to support that. In fact, there's everything in Scripture to deny that, and yet some have made that accusation. As we continue our study of 2 Thessalonians, we see a situation here where the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that he, nor did any other inspired writer, have any misapprehension about the second coming of Christ, any misapplication uh, of it. None was made by them in terms of misapplication. In fact, They wrote to correct the misapprehensions that some had, namely the Thessalonians to whom Paul penned two epistles, and we've already seen to some extent what some of that correction involved. And in making the correction itself, it becomes increasingly clear, evident really to any honest observer, that the Apostle Paul did not believe the Lord was coming again in his lifetime, that he simply wrote, as did the other inspired writers, that we do not know. There's a great deal of difference between writing about the suddenness of the Lord's second coming and the fact that it was coming in their lifetime, that it was imminent. And in 1 Thessalonians, the book that we have just recently uh, finished, in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, remember Paul wrote these words, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He is writing there about the suddenness, the unexpected nature of the second coming of Christ, and refers to it there, of course, as the day of the Lord. It will come as a thief in the night. But as to the time, Paul did not say that we can know, nor did he claim to know, when that second coming would occur. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, as we have already studied, he wrote to correct some of their misapprehensions about those in Christ there at Thessalonica who uh, who were disturbed over the fact that some of their Christian loved ones had died, and since they mistakenly thought that, the Lord was coming again in their lifetime very quickly and their loved ones had died before he came, that those loved ones were going to lose their reward. And so Paul wrote to correct that misapprehension and to make abundantly clear the fact that all will be raised from the tomb when the Lord comes again. The living are not going to precede the dead in terms of any advantage when the Lord comes again. The dead in Christ will rise first, remember, he wrote, and then those of us who are alive, together with them, shall be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so, or thus, we shall always be with the Lord. But now, in the 2nd Thessalonian epistle, there was still some misapprehension that needed to be further corrected, and some agitation of mind, and some shakiness of mind, and that's the idea of shakiness of mind in verse 2 of the chapter we're about to study. That needed to be addressed. They were troubled uh, because they still had some misunderstanding that he needed to correct. And so tonight we continue our study of Second Thessalonians by looking at the second uh, chapter. And he writes to them as this chapter begins. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us those two little words as if are very crucial words letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come in other words he is writing here to reassure them saying i don't want you to be shaken in mind the idea of they are shaken is the idea of being agitated being upset uh, they were they were shaken they were troubled he said i don't want you to be be troubled or shaken in mind. And there, about, there are three ways that he mentions that this could produce, that something could produce this uh, shakiness of mind, this agitation, this this troubled spirit. Either by spirit, and remember in 1 John 4, 1, John wrote, Brethren, try the spirits, whether they be of God, in other words, the teachers. So uh, the same idea is here. He's saying either by spirit, either by a false teacher, that is someone who tries to tell you, Something that is contrary to the will of God, don't you be taken in by that, by spirit—that is, by a false teacher, or by word—that is, there might be some who try to tell you that they had actually heard me say Paul might say that that indeed the second coming of Christ was imminent, that it was coming uh, in in our lifetime. Don't don't take that uh, don't take that to be true, or by letter as if from us. Uh, Don't let anyone deceive you that I have written anything uh, to that effect because I have not written anything to that effect. Now stop for a moment and think how little times have changed since Paul penned these words in terms of the very things that are at work even tonight in the world in which we live concerning those who would deceive. Are there any false spirits that have gone out into the world uh, tonight? Uh, of course are there any uh, who have come before us uh, in previous generations in uh, in so-called modern times who have claimed to have uh, uh, revelations from uh, from God in some way are there any tonight living tonight who claim they are still receiving those revelations from God are they are they still claiming that the holy spirit is guiding them and speaking to them in some way and telling them uh, where to go what to do what to say etc of course they are but That is all contrary to what the written Word of God says. There is no direct operation of the Holy Spirit today that's telling anyone to do anything because the Holy Spirit has already through the Word told us that the Word has been completed and finally delivered and that this is what we need to listen to today, not spirits, that is teachers who would trouble us by contradicting what this book says. This is how we try the spirits, right here. This is how we test them. Uh, In John's day, in 1 John 4, 1, when he wrote that admonition to Christians to try the spirits, there were those who had miraculous gifts and the ability to actually test the spirits. But we have what we need today to do the very same thing in a non-miraculous way. In fact, we're in a far better situation. Paul said we would be in a better situation when that which is what? Perfect or complete or whole had come. That which is in part, those miraculous gifts would be done away. That was the infancy of the church. We are in the the maturity of the church. We have come to that time when that which is complete or whole has been given. Therefore, we are to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians, uh, in the passage we've already Uh, The the book we've already seen, verse uh, 21 of chapter 5, the New King James says, Test all things, hold fast what is good. How do we test all things? We test them according to this book, and we compare them according to this book. But yes, there are those who are telling us that they are being directly spoken to by God, led by God, and saying things that are contrary to this book as they try to tell us that. How can that be? It cannot be. Therefore, we have what we need to test those spirits. Uh, have there been any um, letters, uh, any so-called epistles that have been supposedly discovered? Uh, what about the one uh, recently, the fragment that claimed that Jesus was married? Uh, what about the so-called Gospel of Thomas or these various spurious gospel accounts that have been uncovered? They are just that, spurious. Uh, they are letters that were written long after the New Testament period and have absolutely no hint of inspiration to them at all. And yet people have brought them forth and tried to claim that this is, uh, these are lost letters. These are lost letters of, uh, of of Scripture. No, we can be assured that we have everything and all that we need and that God has provided that through his providence. And so... Don't be taken in, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, but it's pertinent to us tonight because there are still those false spirits who are out in the world. There are still those who claim they've had some word uh, or that they can interpret the word of God in a way that is not consistent with proper hermeneutical principles or the science of interpreting scripture. And so by their word, they would tell us something different than what this word tells us. And yes, there have been those so-called letters, as if from God. That's the key though, as if from God. Paul says, don't be shaken in mind, don't be troubled, either by spirit, false teachers, by word, or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ Had come. Don't let, verse 3, he goes on, don't let anyone deceive you by any means. By any means. For that day, now he's still talking about the second coming of Christ, for that day will not come unless what? And until what? The falling away comes first. The falling away. Think about that for a moment. The falling away. What does that mean? Means the falling away. That's what it means. It means just what it says. He uses the word here from which we get the word apostasy, and apostasy means to depart from the faith. Having once embraced it, one departs from it. You remember that there are warnings throughout Scripture to this same effect. This is not the only passage where the Apostle Paul or others write about. A falling away. Remember Paul to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Take heed, verse 28, to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing or departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, listen to this very carefully, he says to these elders, Also from among yourselves, from among the eldership itself, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. What about his letter to Timothy? Both letters for that matter, but what about 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1? Now the Spirit expressly says, the Spirit says, through the Word, the Spirit expressly says, doesn't hint at or or imply even, but expressly says what, Paul? That in latter times some will depart from the faith. The faith is Christianity, isn't it? How will they depart, Paul? Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, listen to this, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Has anything occurred since Paul penned these words that sounds at all familiar in terms of forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. Indeed, and when we come back to 2 Thessalonians, as we shall now do, we'll see just how familiar these things are as Paul continues to talk about the man of sin whom he identifies as the son of perdition. But before we go there in the latter part of verse 3, think about this. The falling away certainly clearly says that People will depart from the faith, Christianity, having once embraced it, they will leave the faith. Therefore, what? Therefore, one can leave the faith once he's embraced it. One can depart from the faith. One can abandon his faith. Why is it so important that we stress that? Because as we've often stressed it, there are so many... Who contend that one, once he becomes a child of God, can never lose his salvation. That he can never depart from the faith. The impossibility of apostasy is the doctrine. Or the perseverance of the saints, as in the tulip uh, acrostic. As uh, in the the Calvinistic uh, uh, system. The perseverance of the saints means the saints will persevere. They will never fall. That was Calvin's teaching. They will never fall. And many today have embraced Calvin's teaching and persist in that teaching. Once you're saved, you're always saved. The impossibility of apostasy. Therefore, they're saying you cannot fall away. You know what that in effect says then if that's true? The Lord can never come again. The Lord can never come again. His second coming cannot occur. Why? Because Paul says... The falling away will occur before the second coming, and the second coming won't occur until the falling away occurs. If you can't fall away, then the Lord can't come again. If it's impossible to fall away now, it's always been impossible to fall away, which means it will always be impossible to fall away, and therefore the Lord can't come again because Paul says the falling away comes first, and then the Lord will come again at some point after the falling away occurs. Why, the Lord wouldn't even be able to come again. If you can't fall away. Obviously we can fall away. And the Apostle Paul and others wrote to the extent of some 2,500 admonitions in Scripture to that effect. Some 2,500 times the Scriptures teach that one can fall away. And yet what you hear so much of today is that that's an impossibility. You cannot fall from grace. It's simply... One of many examples of how people have fallen away in that very thinking. That very contention represents a falling away from truth, doesn't it? The very fact that people contend you can't fall away shows what? They have fallen away in that respect in that they are advocating something that is totally contrary to Scripture. But notice he says, Let no one deceive you, for that day will not come until the falling away or unless the falling away comes first. And then he says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The man of sin. Who or what is the man of sin? Who is the son of perdition? Well, they are one and the same, obviously, because he simply uses the son of perdition expression to further identify the man of sin. That's evident from the text. But who is the man of sin? Well, how is he described? In verse 4 he says who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now there have been a great many uh, uh, commentators and students of the Bible who have speculated and commented on the identity of the man of sin. Is this uh, individual or individuals or this personification of uh, sin? Is this just simply the increasing uh, uh, sin in the world uh, being personified here as a man and called a a man? Is it a specific individual, one man? I don't believe it is one specific individual. Some have thought it was the uh, Roman Caesars. Uh, that they were uh, representative of the man of sin. But something you have to keep in mind here, and we haven't gotten into that verse, but if you look over at verse 8 of our text here in 2 Thessalonians 2, he talks about the lawless one, and the lawless one is to be identified also with with the man of sin, the son of perdition, and in verse 8 he's called the lawless one will be revealed. But look at this whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. In other words, the lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition, all terms that identify the same the same phenomenon or individual that will be destroyed when the Lord comes again. Therefore, it couldn't be one of the Roman Caesars who lived in the past because are they still around? No, they are not whoever the man of sin is or whatever this represents it's going to still be present when the lord comes again therefore it could not have been the roman caesars i don't believe nor could it be any particular individual like hitler or uh, napoleon or or some individual who has lived in the past but it is um, it is someone or ones or a, a force a phenomenon uh, uh, that will be present with us at the time that the Lord comes again. That is made clear, I believe, by what he says when he says, the lawless one, this man of sin, this son of perdition, will be destroyed with the brightness of the Lord's coming. Therefore, it will be in existence at the time that the Lord comes. So that's important for us to appreciate. Now we go back, and we'll come back to verse 8, but we go back to uh, to. 8. Uh, Verse uh, 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Not literally the temple as in the Old Testament period of time and the, the temple that existed then. But this has to refer to the church but not to the church in its faithfulness and its purity but in the apostate church in the church that apostatized, the apostate church that uh, came into existence with the falling away. Is there anyone today, is there anyone today who fits this description? Is there anyone today who, as it were, sits in the temple of God, if the temple of God represents the apostate church, and who shows himself that he is God? Does the term Lord God the Pope sound familiar? And that is a term that is used today by some in addressing the Pope of Rome, the Lord God the Pope. Does the papacy and the line of papal uh, individuals who have filled that position, do they claim to be able to forgive sins? Who can forgive sins? but God, no one. And yet that claim is made. I say as kindly as I can say it, and I am not alone in this assessment, that you would be hard-pressed to find in Scripture anywhere a better description of the Roman papacy than is here supplied by the Apostle Paul. And it's my conviction that that is exactly what is being described. And as he describes it, he does so prophetically at a time before that papacy ever came into existence. And yet it is described in the kind of detail and with the kind of specificity that I believe makes it very difficult to the honest observer and student of the word to deny that indeed, whether this is what he had in mind or not, it sure does fit very well. And when you go back to First Timothy 4 and verse 1 and beyond, forbidding to marry, no marriage during Lent, commanding to abstain from foods, no fish on Friday, remember? I think they've changed that now. But think about it. Think about it. And I say that as kindly as I can. And if there should be those of the Roman Catholic religion in this audience tonight, I would say to you as kindly as I can and plead with you as fervently as I could to please look at what Paul says and see as objectively and as honestly as possible what is being described here and how what has developed is so totally foreign to the New Testament pattern, tragically. Who is the Pope today? He's an elder, as it has been said, who's gone wrong. An elder who went wrong. Remember, after my departure, savage wolves will enter among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own selves will men arise, teaching perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. What is it that began the apostasy that can be described here, and I believe is described as the falling away? as the Apostle Paul uses that term. What, with what did it begin? It began with an organizational departure. As the eldership was corrupted and as one man was elevated above others and ultimately that hierarchy spread to the point that what we now see in the Roman Catholic hierarchy is indeed the kind of departure that has led not only to an organizational departure, tragically, but to departures in virtually every area of doctrine that one could possibly imagine. By 606 A.D., a man named Boniface III had declared himself to be the universal head of the worldwide church. And yet, the New Testament knows nothing except the elders who are among you I exhort, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. What's the organizational structure of the New Testament church? Elders, plural, who oversee a particular congregation, as is the case right here, with deacons as special servants working under them, preacher working under the oversight of the elders, every other member working under the oversight of the elders. And the New Testament knows absolutely nothing of the hierarchy that has developed in the great apostasy about which I believe Paul is writing right here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God when the Pope enters St. Peter's Basilica as it's called, he doesn't enter standing. He enters sitting being carried on the shoulders of others and he sits. He sits. Where could one find a more literal fulfillment and better description of the one who sits as God, showing himself that he is God? We'll see more about it, but let's look at verse 5. Do you not remember, Paul says, that I, when I was still with you, I told you these things? We may get a little bit of a feeling of a mild rebuke here, uh, It's not absolutely certain that it was a mild rebuke, but it it may very well smack of that. Do you not remember? In other words, I've told you about these things, and now I'm writing to you again. But I told you when I was still with you, and now you know what is restraining. Now look at this. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. He, who he? Who is he? The man of sin. The man of sin may be revealed in his own time, but as the, at the time Paul wrote these words, something was restraining that influence. Something was restraining that, that power that would later manifest itself more fully. He goes on, for the mystery of lawlessness, and by mystery, remember, the mystery of the gospel doesn't mean something mysterious and unknowable. Mystery means in scripture something that has yet to be revealed. And so what he's saying here is the mystery, that is, the, the uh, unrevealed part of this lawlessness is already at work, but it hasn't been fully revealed at this point in time. He's not saying he doesn't know what it is. He knows what it is, and he's telling you what it is, and telling these Thessalonians what it is. But he's saying it is unrevealed. Fully, at this point in time. But it's already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What is the restraining force that Paul refers to here? I believe that it's quite likely that he refers to pagan Rome. The imperial Rome that fell in 476 A.D. But until Imperial Rome fell in 476 A.D., it was a restraining influence on the Holy Roman Empire, as it would later be called. It was a restraining influence on the rise of the papacy because of its power. But when Imperial Rome fell in 476 A.D., it opened the door for the rise of the Holy Roman Empire and the papal power to take full force and to realize its full, lawless potential in the world. That's my conviction on what the restraining force is. We cannot be absolutely dogmatic about it, but it certainly makes sense, I believe. that there was something, and what would that have been, unless it had been pagan Rome, political Rome, that power that was overshadowing the papal power. But once that empire was gone, the papal power was free reach ascendancy and it did then he says the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume we're back to verse 8 now with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming some have said that the man of sin is Satan can't be Satan can't be Satan Satan produces the man of sin he's not the man of sin verse 9 The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Satan's behind it. Satan is the one who supplies it with its its power. But what kind of power? Power, signs, and lying wonders. Let me ask you again. What is better described than the papacy and everything associated with it than the lying wonders... Signs and powers that are all deceptive in terms of some of the things that have supposedly occurred over time, and so-called miracles and sightings of Mary and et cetera, et cetera. So many things that have supposedly occurred. What are they? Lying wonders. And verse 10, with all unrighteous deception. So lying and deception are two key words. In verses 9 and 10. They are not real. They are not from God. But they are lying wonders. Unrighteous deception. And who is deceived by them? Tragically precious souls. Myriads of precious souls are deceived by them. Those who perish. Because they did not what? Receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason. Because they did not love the truth, appreciate the truth, and were more receptive to a lie than they were the truth, and were determined not to accept the truth, God's going to allow that. In verse 11, it is put this way, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Sometimes in scripture, God is said to do that which he allows to be done. And I believe that's the case here. They had a mindset that was unreceptive to the truth. They did not love the truth. They were not receptive to the truth. They were more determined to embrace error and the lying wonders and power and signs that were deceptive. And for that reason, God allowed them to do so. He sent them strong delusion. He allowed that to occur. If you look at Romans chapter 1, you see a similar statement there in verse 28 to the one we have just noted here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, Paul said, it's talking about those who left the natural use of the woman, etc., all of these vile passions that are described in this section. In verse 28 he says, And even as they did not, listen to it, like to retain God in their knowledge, even as they did not, what? Like to retain, they didn't, they didn't like retaining God in their knowledge. They didn't want that. It was too restrictive, obviously, on their lives. They wanted unrighteousness. They loved they loved that. You're going to see in verse 12, had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is, a, that is an identical description to these in Romans chapter 1. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Verse 28 of Romans 1, and what did God do? He gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And he goes on to talk about how they were filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, and he goes on and on. But why? Why did they go into that and remain in that? Why would they not come out of it? They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And God gave them over. Same thing that's being said here. God sent strong delusion that they should believe the lie, not arbitrarily, not against their will, but because they were so determined to believe and accept the lie, God allowed it, that they all, verse 12, may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's a key phrase. Key statement, pleasure in unrighteousness. There are a great many people tragically today who have pleasure in unrighteousness. And there are a great many people today in the religious world who can continue to have pleasure in unrighteousness and there's a system out there that will tell them all you need to do is just make your regular confessions to the priest and he'll absolve you of all that unrighteousness and you can go right back to that unrighteousness and then you can get absolution from that. And even if you don't get absolution before you die and you wind up in a fictitious place called purgatory, then you can get prayed out of purgatory or paid out of purgatory. At one time you could at least get paid out of purgatory. John Tetzel, uh, during the Reformation movement, in the rise of the Reformation movement, that was one of the things Martin Luther was so upset about, was indulgences, the sale of indulgences. You could get indulgences, you could, get, you could pay to get a license to sin. You tell me that's not apostasy gone to seed from the New Testament pattern? It's tragic beyond description. And what is more tragic is the number, numberless, the numberless souls who have fallen prey to it and who are still falling prey to it. We say to them with as much kindness as we can muster in our hearts, listen to what Paul describes here. Listen to it. Read it objectively and see in it a description of an apostasy that was indeed a great falling away and one that we can see in operation even to this moment in time and that I believe will still be present based on what Paul writes in this text we've just studied when the Lord comes again. But when he comes again, he'll destroy that apostasy with the breath of his mouth. And oh, how tragic it will be for those who have not, awakened to the apostasy and have chosen to come away from it to become a part of the New Testament church of which we read in the New Testament organized simply but scripturally with Christ as the head of the church the elders as the under shepherds in each congregation overseeing the flock of God which is among them all of us working together under their oversight following the pattern of the new testament not only in organization but in every other aspect that when he does come and the brightness of his coming is evident that we can see it with anticipation and not anxiety and that we can be prepared for it and ready to go home with him to be with him for all eternity is that where you are tonight ready prepared it's our fervent prayer that you are but if not we plead with you to get ready and you can you can By a belief in Jesus as the Christ, the one who will come again, we know not when, but he will come again. And by repenting of your sins, letting that belief move you forward to fully repent of your sins and to confess him as the Christ and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins, you can have that remission, that forgiveness through his blood that's applied in that watery burial and you rise to walk in newness of life. Being added not to an apostate body, The church that apostatized, no, but being raised to walk in newness of life and added to his church, his kingdom, the church, they're one and the same, described in the New Testament. The pattern of which is being followed in this place and many other places throughout the world tonight as people who call themselves Christians and nothing more work and worship according to the New Testament pattern. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, we plead with you to do that tonight. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has fallen away, and certainly it's clearly established in Scripture that falling away is a possibility, and if that is a reality in your life, we plead with you to come home in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly that we might have opportunity to pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you supremely. As we stand to sing, please come.